If you have a copy of the confession, you can have it out to chapter 13, paragraph 3. It's in the back of the hymnal as well. And if you have a Bible, take it out also. And turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter... Five, six, seven, eight. <laughs> I want to read them all. Um, let's, let's read Romans 7, verses 7 through to chapter 8, verse 2. Remember that chapter 6 is one of the the premier texts in the New Testament dealing with sanctification. We've come out of that now and we're, uh, Paul is discussing what it looks like for a person that has been set apart and is being saved and what that life looks like. And he says in beginning at verse 7, what, shall, or what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy. And righteous. And good. Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd add your blessing to your Word and that you would teach us this evening from your Word and from our own confession as it summarizes the Scriptures and as we consider the things that are commonly believed amongst us according to the Scriptures, I pray that you would teach us that your Word would reign supreme, that all would be for glory, for the glory of Christ alone. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. So we are finishing this chapter on sanctification. And I told you two weeks ago that I had what I felt like was too much material for, for one lesson. And so I split it up. And then I said, so you'll get two short lessons. And then I didn't really give you a short lesson. Um, so I'm going to try to stay, stay true to that. But I do want to since it's been two weeks, sort of recap a little bit of what I said last time, the previous paragraph leading into this third paragraph. So remember that that paragraph we called the process of sanctification. Here's what's going to be happening throughout the life of a Christian. And you can read that paragraph. It says, this sanctification is throughout the whole man. Because the effect of sin has ravaged the whole man, body and soul, the work of redemption encompasses the whole man, body and soul. It's not complete in this life, but we can expect that that work will eventually be finished because Jesus Christ is a complete Savior. And the Holy Spirit is a thorough Savior and a thorough cleanser. And so when it's all said and done, eventually in glory, we'll actually have new glorified bodies like our Lord. So this is going to be happening throughout our whole lives. Body and soul is going to be cleansed of its defilement, being made holy. And from this process, that paragraph said, there ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war. And that's what we just read about in Romans 7. The continual war in the believer, always ongoing forever until we're in the dirt. There's going to be a war in us, in this life. And this war is an irreconcilable war. The two sides cannot be brought together. Why? Because Romans 8, 7, which we didn't read that far, but Romans 8, 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is, and a better translation would be, hostility or enmity, a noun to God. It is enmity with God. It is hostility. Enemies can be reconciled, but enmity itself cannot be reconciled because of the very nature of enmity. So there's always going to be this war within us described by Scripture and the Confession as the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit lusting against the flesh. The flesh being the old man, the remaining corruption within us, it's warring, it's opposing, it's attacking the spirit. What is the spirit? It's the spirit of God in us. The Spirit of God in the soul. Again, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostility, is enmity against God. 
Because God the Spirit takes up residence in the believer, the war in you is your old corruption warring against the Spirit of God in you. So this is a continual, irreconcilable war. And so we must expect several things. We must expect that sanctification will encompass the whole man. We don't get to say, well, my mind is is, is getting there, but there are other parts of me that I'm just going to not worry about. The, the sins of my carnal flesh, well, I'll let them go as long as I affirm the right truths. No, sanctification will, will bring a renewal of the mind. It will be a renewal of the affections and the physical body. Even in this life, physical appetites change because of what the Spirit does in the heart. So we expect that in the whole man, we expect there to be a war, and this war humbles us forces us to look outside of ourselves and to Christ always. And I said at the very end that we need to fight this war biblically. There are a lot of people who talk about spiritual warfare, and they have, you can tell they have no idea what that means. To them, they're thinking of, of, of demons and angels and they, them taking part in, in some kind of cosmic battle. And, and there is a cosmic battle, but when we talk about spiritual warfare... In the day-to-day life, in our day-to-day lives, there are very practical, down-to-earth, biblical things that we can be doing, and we don't have to close our eyes and imagine that we're actually fighting demons themselves. Things like starving your corruptions, having the mind and the heart and the will taught and led by the Word of God, setting your mind on godly things, taking advantage of godly examples, encouraging one another, and praying for one another, and we have to do this Continually, because the war is continual and irreconcilable. It's a lifelong battle that we are in. And the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly weapons, but we do use our human faculties to engage in this battle. Now, when we think about that, a lifelong battle, especially if you're a young believer, and and you're noticing this war, it can seem like a wearisome task. I'm, I'm, you know, you, you make it through Tuesday and, and you're thinking, how can I do this for 30 more years, 40 more years? And so it, it can seem wearisome. And so the final chapter reminds us that there is a great hope. There, there's an end in sight. So that third paragraph begins with these words, in which war, which I just described. The continual irreconcilable war between the corruption in you and the Spirit of God in you. In that war, here's what we can expect. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail. So here's the truth. If we wanted to sort of separate it out from the the train of thought, here's the truth. The remaining corruption for a time may much prevail. Now let's break that down. The corruption in you may prevail. It may prove to be powerful and more powerful. That corruption may much prevail. In other words, there might be times where in this, con- or in this war, it's like there's no contest. It's like you wonder if there's anything good in you in this battle. And this corruption may for a time much prevail. In other words, this might go on for extended periods of time especially when someone is newly converted. The remaining corruption for a time may much prevail. So whenever you come to the point of decision where the will is inclined and a choice has to be made, 
to some good or some evil, a regenerate person, not a lost person, a regenerate person has what we might consider two powers at work within them, and they are vying for authority. They both want to call the shots. The flesh and the spirit. The flesh lusts against the spirit. The spirit lusts against the flesh. They are warring with one another, and something in you inclines you to do right. Something in you inclines you to do wrong. And sometimes, perhaps for a time, the flesh, which is inclining you to evil, wins. Now what happens when it wins? You sin. This is what happens when you sin. Every time you sin, whether you're consciously aware of it or not, the flesh, the corruption remaining in you, has won out. And the, then the confession here references Romans 7, 23. I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now notice that phrase, a law of sin. You have to be careful here because Paul uses the word law a bunch and sometimes he's being very specific about the law of God and other times he's using it like he is here. A law of sin, Paul says, dwells in my members. Presently, this is a participle, is presently dwelling in my members. Paul says right now, it's dwelling in my members. Now what is the law of sin? If it's not... The, the moral legal code that God handed down to Moses. What, do we, what does he mean by a law of sin? Anytime we're talking about a law, we're just talking about a, a principle that carries with it some sort of power, some sort of authority. We, we very often talk about the laws of nature or the laws of physics like gravity. Principles that govern how things function. They, they sort of... They, they have a, a sphere in which they execute some sort of power like gravity. Gravity has a, a power, a force over an object. It doesn't matter how hard I throw something in the air. There's a law of gravity that's stronger than what I can throw. It, it kind of has a power over it. And so when Paul says that there's a law of sin presently dwelling in my members... He's saying that there is this... That, that old natural disposition to evil, that corruption still is in me and it still retains some kind of power. It still has some strength. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail. How does it prevail? Well, the law of sin exercises its power in and through the same faculties of the law of the spirit of life that we read about in Romans 8. The, the spiritual law. It exerts an influence over the mind and over the affections and over the will. So here are some examples of how this might work. And this stuff, the reason this stuff is important to, to go through is so that you can notice what's happening. If we're not aware of the tactics of our own corruption, we're not going to be ready to fight this war. This is one of the ways that we fight, becoming acquainted with how this works. And so perhaps in an instance... The corruption in you sort of insists on the old way. And so something in you says, well, this is the way you've always done it. Something in you says, well, this is the way you were raised. And so it inclines you to a choice. Or that corruption might tempt you to some sensual pleasure of sin. It might bring to your mind and advertise to you a past carnal pleasure. 
Or you might remember the false excuse for happiness that you once felt. Hey, remember that one time you did that? Now, now it won't remind you of how it left you empty. And it won't remind you of how you had to have it over and over and over again to feel any sort of satisfaction. It'll take you back to that one split moment where, you, where it that felt like it was a delight. And they'll say, you remember that? Well, you want that, don't you? Didn't you like that? Or it might deceive you with reference to the blessings of righteousness. Like the devil did to Eve in the garden. Try to convince you that obedience is restriction. Well, if you go that way, well, that's just... That's just too much. If you, if you take that pathway of holiness, there's not really any joy there. I mean, you, you see the Christians that you know, they don't seem like very fun people. But look at the world and look at how much fun they're having. If you choose that pathway, that's real happiness. Over here is just bland religion. It will bring these things to your mind and influence the mind and the affections and sometimes, perhaps for a time, that law of sin will win in a particular instance. Every time you sin, you're falling for an influence like this. Something in you has convinced you that sin is better than righteousness. That's what happens when we sin. Now, knowing this, as a Christian, when I read this, this doesn't comfort me. I don't read this and say, Whoo! Well, I guess I'm good then. I'm, I'm comforted in my sin. Because the confession says, hey, it happens to everybody. A regenerate person hates this reality because what we might call the supreme law in them is the law of the spirit of life. That's the supreme law. And so anytime this happens, anytime there is a prevailing of the corruption and it wins, that's a loss. Now imagine a commanding officer in a battle and he's just lost a battle and he looks out over the battlefield and he sees the bloodied bodies of his men lying on the battlefield. He does not take comfort in the fact that, well, you can't win them all. No, he, he regroups. And they're going to assess the damage. They're going to evaluate the enemy. They're going to evaluate all of their tactics because the goal of going into a battle is not to prove that sometimes you lose. The goal of going into battle is to win. And anytime you don't win, it's failure. So we don't read this and say, well, you know, there it is. Nobody's perfect. Everybody sins. We never think that way. We, we see that there is a war and we desire to win. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, and now we get to turn to the progress that we can expect. Even though we know that sometimes the corruption prevails, the confession says, yet... Through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ. Now here we have another set of truths. Cut it off from its syntax and just notice what it's saying. And remember all of these things are things we confess. The Spirit of Christ is the sanctifying Spirit. His work in us is to make us Holy. The Holy Spirit is the chief agent in the work of sanctification. That is His specific job. The Spirit of Christ supplies us with strength. He gives us spiritual life, spiritual vigor, spiritual power. The Spirit of Christ supplies us continually with this strength. Why? Because He lives in us. He dwells within us and He never runs out of strength. 
Now remember the, 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 per, the verse that says, uh, make no provision for the flesh. The idea is don't feed the flesh. Don't feed the corruption. Don't give it anything that it can use to build up strength and then act. Now the opposite of that would be starve it, actively starve the flesh. But then we come over to this principle of grace. What ought we be doing? What should we be doing to the new man? Feed him. Give him food. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, feeds the new man because he's the life source. And through this continual supply, the confession says, the regenerate part doth overcome. The regenerate part being the new man, the new creature. The Spirit of God feeds and gives strength and life to the new man. He gets stronger and stronger and he begins to win battles. The Spirit of God gives that to a Christian. Romans 6.14 is the reference here. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Notice, sin will have no dominion. This is a promise. It will have no dominion. While there does remain a law of sin in us, it's not a law that rules over us. John Owen makes a distinction between a law in us and a law unto us. The law of sin doesn't have ruling power. It doesn't have dominion over us, as we said from the very beginning. So, and this, is, this might not be quite as encouraging, but that means that whenever you sin, you're just giving in to a lesser power. It's not that it forced you to do it. You're just giving in. The regenerate part in the new man overcomes, and so the saints grow in grace. Now, this concept of growing in grace is a phrase and a thing that we, we say a lot. Not very many people explain what it means. So I want to take the time to explain this phrase, growing in grace. Very often we'll pray, Lord, give them grace. And if you don't know what that means, you're thinking, what does that mean? So I want to try to explain what, what we mean when we talk about growing in grace. Remember that grace is essentially God Himself working in a person to give them what they need contrary to what they deserve. Grace is synonymous with, in many texts, synonymous with the word gift. The word means gift. And so when we talk about graces, God strengthening graces, we are essentially saying God, talking about God strengthening the gifts that God has worked in you. And so to grow in grace is to increase in the various gifts that God gives you. But over here, we're not talking about the specific category of what we tend to refer to as the spiritual gifts. That's in there, but here we're talking about a broader category. Those things are given each individual having a variation of a particular gift to use in the body. This is a broader sense of the gifts that God gives to the believer because they are the temple of the Holy Spirit and He is the Spirit of grace. So what are these graces? We can start with that list that John Murray gave us several weeks ago when we talked about the fullness of Christ. Here are some graces that come into a believer because they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Righteousness. 
wisdom, knowledge, power, goodness, patience, love. Talked about that this morning. Truth, mercy. We could add to that list the fruits of the Spirit. Joy, peace, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, gratitude, trust, obedience. We could, if we wanted to, we could spend however long you wanted to just dissecting all of the great, specific, and diverse traits that we see manifest in the Lord Jesus. All of it. Every trait that makes Him good, that makes Him lovely, these are in Him, that they constitute His fullness when the Spirit of Christ comes to dwell in us, we partake of that fullness. And these are what we call graces. The, the, I don't know any other way to think of it than, than the fullness of Christ being bestowed upon His people. And through the sanctifying work of the Spirit of Christ, those various graces grow in us. They increase. Their prevalence and influence Increase. They become more and more the dominant traits in our soul. Now, how does this happen? How does the Spirit actually give growth in these graces? Again, we have to concede that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural, so we can't just, we can't just describe it, but only so far. We have to stop at some point and say, and the Spirit does that. But the Spirit uses... The means of grace. You see, all of this is coming together. The chief means of grace being the Word of God. So, how does the Spirit use the means of grace to increase the graces in us? Well, these graces, just like any muscle, anything in us, are increased through constant use, like a muscle. And so the Spirit, through the means of grace, provides occasions for these graces to be exercised. This is how this, this works, and I got this outline from, from John Owen. His stuff on this is helpful. These are just some suggestions. But he, the Spirit does this first by exciting them to frequent actings. In other words, by giving occasions for these graces to be used. So the Spirit might propose the object of these graces seasonably and suitably from the outside, and then He might from the inside preserve the root and stir them from within. So let me just put that in, in a concrete example. As, as an example, the grace being increased is love for God. How can I have that increased in me through the means of grace? Here's an example. The Word is preached, and the sermon contains some truth about God that the mind and the Spirit discern as lovely. The Spirit uses that occasion to, in me, stir up my love for God. And in that moment, maybe in a brief second, maybe for an extended period of time, I exercise love for God. Now that's just once. I have to do that over and over and over and as I do it more and more and more, love for God increases in me. That's why when we say, how can I increase in my love for God? We say, study Him. Study God. Well, how can I grow in love for Christ? Study Him. See who He is. 
and exercise that grace. The Spirit might also order events where we must exercise these graces. For example, the grace being exercised is patience. You're driving to church and somebody in front of you is driving too slow. The Spirit reminds you, you need to be patient. And you say, yes, I'll be patient. And you exercise patience. If, that, if those two happen on the same day, in that one day you have increased or strengthened love for God and patience. And the more you do that, more and more and more, these graces are strengthened. Or he might effectually remind us of our duty by bringing Scripture to our minds. In, in any situation, the uh, Scripture that we studied prior comes to the mind and the Spirit uses that to remind you, right now you should be kind. And we say, I will be kind. And we exercise the grace of kindness and so on. Throughout the whole of the Christian life, we are brought to countless crossroads and circumstances where we have to decide, am I going to walk by the Spirit or I'm, am I going to walk in the flesh? And every time we allow or follow the lead of the Spirit, we're exercising one or more of these graces. Every time we use them, we get stronger in them. And as they get stronger, we start winning battles. And we lose less and less battles, and we win more and more battles. See how that works? Now what does that produce? Imagine a person who in their life, they are slowly losing less battles to the flesh, and they are winning more and more battles to the Spirit, what will that person look like outwardly and, in, and inwardly in their life? Well, look at the confession. It says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after an heavenly life. And the confession references 2 Corinthians 7.1, which we studied a while back. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What is holiness? It's being more and more like Christ. How do we become more and more like Christ? We exercise the graces of which Christ is the fullness through the power of the Spirit of Christ in us. And we become more and more Holy, And we strive after and live a life where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven in my life. Now when you think about this, it, it brought to my mind a, a phrase that is often used very derogatorily in our society. People will say that someone acts like they're holier than thou, which it doesn't even make sense in the language, but she just thinks she's holier than thou, which means holier than you. And they say that like it's a bad thing, and the idea is, well, nobody's holier than anybody else. We're all just, we're, we're all the same. That's false. There are people who are holier than thou. If there can't be this person holier than this person, then this person can't be holier than this person five years ago. There is a growth. And I ought to be holier than I was 15 years ago. Therefore, I ought to be holier than somebody who's not as holy as me. If I am increasing in these graces, 
And it's all by God's grace through His Spirit. There's no room for arrogance or pride here. But there's, there's nothing wrong with saying, that man is a holy man. I can't wait to be holy like that man. I want to be like him. I'm not as holy as he is. He is holier than me. Now the confession describes this increasing holiness and this heavenly life in these terms. The saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after in heavenly life in, here's what that pressing looks like, evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in His Word hath prescribed to them. Now what is evangelical obedience? I believe it's synonymous what you might often see referred to as gospel obedience or gospel holiness. We have to understand that there is a legal obedience. Legal obedience is I'm obeying God because I don't want to suffer the punishment or I do want to receive the rewards. That's legal obedience. Gospel obedience or evangelical obedience is what we've just described. It's an obedience and a holiness that flows from an increase of the graces in the soul through the Spirit of Christ. And this is why it's called gospel holiness. It is an effect of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, enters into the world as a man. Bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He comes in union with His people. And by His perfect life and sacrificial, curse-bearing death on the cross, He satisfies the wrath of God in the place of sinners. He's raised on the third day. He ascends into the heavens. He sends His Holy Spirit to make application of that work to those who believe. A part of that application is sanctifying those for whom Christ died. And the sanctifying work consists of the Spirit of Christ dwelling in the believer and giving us an increase in growth in these graces of which Christ Himself is the source and fountain. That's how this comes. It doesn't start with me looking at the, the threat or the reward and saying, okay, I'll obey. It starts with Christ in me, changing me from the inside and producing a holiness. Now, that doesn't mean that we completely discredit the threatenings or the blessings of God's Word, but gospel obedience is, a, is, is rooted in what Christ has done. It is an effect of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, as head of the body and king of His kingdom, sends forth His Spirit to supply His church with all the fullness that is in Him. Let me quote John Owen one more time. Because this is... I like this. There neither is, nor ever was in the world, nor ever shall be, the least dram of holiness, but what, flowing from Jesus Christ, is communicated by the Spirit according to the truth and promise of the gospel. That's what, we, that's what evangelical obedience is. It flows from Christ in me. The Spirit of Christ in me, increasing graces, producing holy living. The confession reference gives us two more references. Ephesians 4, 15, and 16. Rather, 
speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now I have, in the past, taken that long sentence and, and ripped it to shreds, just trying to wrap my mind around it because the language is very difficult to follow. What's happening? Who's building what? What's increasing what? And we talked in the study on unity that what he's saying is the body makes the body grow. But notice, back at the beginning, this little phrase, into Christ from whom? That's the root of it all. When you read that, you see Christ from whom, and then you continue to read and you don't see any more language about Him. You trace the, the, the nouns and the verbs and you're like, well, it sounds like the body's doing this. And it sounds like the, the, the body is making itself grow. And, but up here it said Christ, and the answer is, yeah, exactly. Christ is the source and fountain of all of the gifts, of all of the graces. And when Christ injects His Spirit into a people and they come together and they are increasing in graces together, that makes the body grow. All growth in the body flows from Jesus Christ. He is the source of all gifts, of all graces, of all strength. The body builds itself up through the strength that He gives. It's all Him. Every bit of it comes from Him. And only through our union with Him can we have any of these graces or have any hope of this progress. That's why we began with, who are we talking about here? We're talking about people who've been brought from death to life and united to Christ. He is the vine. We are the branches. And then 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all, with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Christ, through His Spirit, gives us the growth and we increase in graces. We will fight a war throughout our lives. But as we are led by the Spirit, and this is why it's so important that we, we seek to be consistent in our walk, that we are consistently before the means of grace, consistently applying the principles of the Word that we're seeing, because imagine a weightlifter who goes to lift weights one day, and he, just, he works himself to death one day, and he goes home sweating and tired, he's sore for two weeks, but that's all he does. He's not, he, he should not expect any growth whatsoever. But the one who goes in and slowly, consistently puts into practice basic principles. Read the Word. What does it teach me of Christ? I'm beholding the glory of the Lord in Christ. I'm watching Him. What is lovely about it? Okay, I'm taking that. I'm going to do that. And you pray, God, provide for me opportunities and help me to be sensitive to put that into practice today. And then when you do it, you say, Aha! Thank you, Lord, for the grace of your Spirit. Now help me to increase and do it again. And you do that over and over and over. And in your life, you will become more holy. That's sanctification. And, and Christ is, is faithful to do that in His people until the time when He gathers us into His presence. 
So let's pray that He would continue this work, and then we'll sing together. Father, we